Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. It's a, a spectacular autumn morning. I think we're now past the first day of fall, and it's real. And it feels real. I tell people, growing up in Florida, I uh, grew up in the part of Florida that basically has one season and uh, six hours of fall. And uh, so I, I actually like uh, the four seasons. I would, I would shorten winter. And uh, yet, I would, I mean, to like four days, I think that'd be nice. But uh, this, is, this is the way it works. And uh, it's another reminder of the fact that God made the world, this planet as a habitation, in such a marvelous way that for the growth of crops and for just any number of factors known and unknown to us, this changing of the seasons is a representation of his glory. And even in the Bible, and then ricocheting through all of literature and life is a recognition of the four seasons and how nature itself goes through a process of seasonal change. I'm very glad to be here this morning. Mary and I are glad to be here this morning for this line-to-line uh, -line study. I am uh, preaching this afternoon in Indianapolis, so I've got to teach and run. But I'm glad we were able to be here uh, before we have to leave for Indianapolis. We're going to be looking today at Leviticus 3 and the peace offering. Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you give us reminders of your care for us in things we take for granted. The shining of the sun, the Christmas of the air. Father, we thank you for making a world that so reflects your glory. And Father, we're thankful that you speak to us in this world. Most importantly, in your written word, the Holy Scriptures. Father, as we study your scriptures today, we pray that they will come alive. Bear much fruit within us, we pray. Amen. So we have seen uh, at least a couple of different kinds of offerings or sacrifices, beginning with the burnt offerings and then the grain offerings. And then as we will continue, because there are several, one of the things that immediately comes to our mind is that if you add all of this together, if you add it all together, for the people of Israel, this is a constant issue. It, it's for practical purposes, a daily issue. The sins of the people are many. The thankfulness of the people is constant. The need for these offerings and sacrifices never goes away. If you think about it for a moment, it is an enormous enterprise. It's a, an enormous enterprise just to try to think of how many animals, cumulatively, throughout the experience of Israel, were sacrificed in this way? How much grain? How many fires were on the altar? How much blood was shed? Looking at it, it's clear. We're not talking about a small amount of blood, just on something like a daily basis. We're talking about gallons upon gallons that would turn into what we might say would be barrels upon barrels of, of blood. Another thing that comes to mind is that an awful lot of time is going to have to be spent cleansing this sacrificial apparatus. It, it's going to be constant. It's, it's really never ceasing. There's, there's going to be very little time when either the attention will not be to setting up the sacrifices or conducting the sacrifices, which would be many on many days. It would just be many one after another and then taking care of the aftermath. We come to Leviticus 3, and we find the category of the peace offering. Now, again, this is not called in this context a sacrifice, though it is a sacrifice, and it will be called that within the text You'll see it in verse 6, a sacrifice of peace. You also see it as an offering, an offering. 
So the first word is offering, and then the second is sacrifice. In his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering. Let's just read the text. And remember, this is in a flow that originally was not separated by chapter and verse division. So this would have come right after the priest burning the grain offering in verse 16 of chapter 2. Then we read this. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove from the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on the top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasant aroma to the Lord. Now, one of the interesting categories we're going to meet right here is fat. Fat. We have certain conceptions of fat. I'm wondering, does that door have to be open? Thank you. Thank you so much. We, we have several different thoughts that come with fat, and most of it is what we would cut off the meat. That fat, however, is very valuable. Uh, so, for instance, if, if you have a modern cook today, and uh, the modern cook has the grocery store available, then certain shortenings, vegetable oils, other things that can be bought that don't require the reduction of the fat, uh, that's something like lard. But you really can't do much cooking without it. The fat is an enormous sort, uh, source of oil. And, and notice how many times oil is mentioned here. And so the, the fat is an expensive part of the meat. That's a very, very vital part of the animal. But don't let your limitation of imagination stop there. Because the reality is that the word fat in this context, which is used repeatedly, including the fat of the land, and even the fat of the wheat, it really means best part. And so if you were to think about a prime cut of beef, well, that would be included in the fat. There's no separate category for filet mignon or, uh, you know, uh, for uh, something like a steak or a roast. That's all covered in the word fat. It also helps to explain why it would be such a pleasing aroma to the Lord, at least in terms of the smells we know, but of course that means for the Lord an acceptable sacrifice. You'll notice again the specificity. This is not just, you know, a peace offering is supposed to be a, a good animal. Come bring it and uh, sacrifice it to me. No, it, it's given in such detail. He shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. So basically, you're separating holy from unholy portions of the, of the, the animal. You are separating the, uh, the healthy from the unhealthy, especially as you're thinking about the fact that Israel's very honest about the process of elimination. And the process of elimination is unclean, Therefore, the entrails themselves are to be treated separately, but the entrails are connected to the meat. The meat you take, the, the meat ends up a prime part of the sacrifice. And then notice also, there's something else here. Notice the specificity. He shall remove uh, the long lobe of the liver, he shall remove with the kidneys, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loin. Here's something interesting. As you look at Hebrew physiology, whether of animals or of human beings, it is rudimentary. And you look at that and you say, did they have a clue what the kidneys did? The answer is really no. Did they have a sense what the liver did? 
The answer is really no. Did they have a sense what the heart did? Far more because of the reality that the heart makes its presence and its problems known. And especially with the animals and the, and the cursing of blood and the centrality of blood to life, the heart, you can figure out. Brain injury, you can figure out. But when it comes to many of the other organs, it, it just isn't really clear. And, and frankly, won't be for a very, very long time. And you say, well, how long a time? Well, in reality, you could go to the founding era of the United States of America and one of the founders, Dr. Benjamin Rush, and, and you could look at his work and you could be reminded of the fact they don't know most of what we know now about medicine. Germ theory, not there yet. Even the particular function of many organs, there were, by the way, several reasons for this. One, one was the uh, medieval Catholic uh, prohibition against autopsies and opening a dead body. So uh, due to the fact that, and by the way, that, that meant that the only people who did such things tended to be grave robbers and uh, those who were later called body men. They uh, produced bodies for experimentation and this shows up in Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, The Strange Tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and as it turns out, the transition in that story is first of all the fact that this royal physician is involving himself in uh, the dissection of human beings, and that's an illicit practice that requires a back part of his house. Pretty soon, you know, the transformation is into two different people. As I just told you, that's how recent that is. That's 19th century London. And, uh, and, and by the way, there are certain glands and parts of the human body today that medical doctors really don't know the purpose of. But there it is. You'll notice here, however, that it's the privileged part of the animal includes the liver and the, and the kidneys. But not the entrails, which presumably is the rest of the, let's just say, inside of the animal. You get to verse 5 and we're told, Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on the top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasant aroma to the Lord. In verse 6, If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female. Well, hold, hold on just a minute. Hold on just a minute. Did you notice something in, in verse 1? Did you notice the radical distinction between this and the burnt offering? The burnt offering was an animal that had to be a prime male from the herd. Not the peace offering. It's an animal from the herd, male or female. Now from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. So it has to be without blemish, but now in this sacrifice, the animal can be a male or a female. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove with the kidneys, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord." Well, evidently, there's a good part of the, of the animal from the flock that's connected to the tail, and the Lord wants that for the offering as well. Verse 12 tells us about goats. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting, and the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, 
the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasant aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Things are getting more interesting than may first appear. So now we have the, the cattle as it starts out, male or female, without blemish. Sacrificed in just such a way that even as now the animal is, is slaughtered and the sacrifice takes place, specific parts are to be taken out. These specific parts are to be burned on the altar. Remember, in the burnt offering, it is the entire animal that is burned on the altar. So now we have a strategic specificity of, of certain parts of certain animals brought under certain conditions, and it is the best part of these animals, not the entirety of the animals. Remember in the first one, you had the entrails washed, and then they were a part of the sacrifice. Not here. Now, now you have the prime part of the animal, and we're going to come to understand why. It's because this, this sacrifice, this peace offering, though it involves the burning of the sacrifice on the fire, is a very different sacrifice than the burnt offering. The peace offering points to the reconciliation that is accomplished by Jesus Christ, the reconciliation between God and sinful humanity, those who are in Christ. It points to a solemnization of that fact. And if it, the animal is from the flock, if it is a lamb, male or female, without blemish, if it is a goat, male or female, without blemish, then it is to be brought, and you see the parallel, the kidneys, the, the long lobe of the liver, the fat. And then the explanatory sentence, simply, the fat is the Lord's. The, the, the fat belongs to God. Now wait just a minute. Wait, we need some biblical theology here. We've we got to keep our category straight. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to the Lord. The whole earth belongs to the Lord. So how do we say that when we come to the sacrifice where everything belongs to the Lord, that the fat belongs to the Lord? This means a special claim. And that, that tells us that what we're watching here is going to be something in biblical theology that is going to come up again and again, and it's going to come up in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there, is a, there is a special mind. There's a general mind that the Lord speaks, but there's a special mind. There's a sense in which all human beings belong to God because he, he made us. He is the, the author. He's the creator. But when the Lord speaks to the church, he speaks to the church as mine in his son in a way he does not speak. Of the rest. Now, I don't know what you do with that entirely because that means right now we're the fat. At least in anticipation, we're the fat. The Lord says, I elect, I elect that I want certain parts of these animals to be brought. There's something else here about the process that. Uh, I received a question about between last week and, and this week, and that is, why is the animal slaughtered there? That's an interesting question. In other words, why do you not have the sacrifice done elsewhere in, say, a sacrificial barn or a sacrificial lot, and the sacrifice takes place there because that's a pretty messy, messy affair. This is the beauty of the tabernacle or the temple, and, and so wh why not just bring all the good parts to the Lord? And it is because the sacrifice its visible nature and the picture of the animal that dies at, I should not say at, but just before the altar. The animal that dies just before the altar, inside of the altar. That's a very, very important picture. What the Lord wants. This is his sacrifice. This is what he demands. As the chapter comes to an end, we read that simple verse, verse 16, all fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you neither, you eat neither fat nor 
blood. And we've been told a couple of interesting things here because we've also been told that the, the salt of the covenant is an eternal principle. And now the, the fat is the Lord's. That's an eternal principle. It should be a statute forever. And by the way, you say, well, forever is now. Where's this now? This is fulfilled in Christ. Christ fulfilled all. And that meant specifically all of the sacrificial demands. There's, this, is, this is all fulfilled in Christ. And keep in mind that there could be no one in Israel in the time of Jesus who would not have heard all sacrificial language in this context. This is one of the reasons why it's profitable for us as Christians to go through Leviticus because it's extremely profitable for us to try our best to say, okay, had we been in Jerusalem in the first century and we heard Jesus and observed the events, had we been with the disciples on that last supper, all this knowledge would have been in us and not just in us because we know Torah, but in us because this is the experience of Israel. It's the dominating experience of Israel. And that gets to something else. We're going to see this over and over again. And it, it, it makes us feel perhaps a bit alien and strange to this at first. Because you folks who have come and gladly come to uh, worship and to the preaching of God's word. I mean, you just don't look too active. Sitting in seats. Not doing a whole lot. There'll be some doing later, but our doing is basically praying, singing, standing, listening. There's a whole lot of doing going on here that's, I mean, doing. You're corralling animals who may be figuring things out. <laughs> you're bringing them, you're making everything ready. This is, the physical activity involved in this is massive. It's massive, it's massive. And we go back to one of the basic principles of the Reformation, and that's that people love to see things happen, which is one of the reasons why the Roman Catholic Mass is as it is. You get to see things happen. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of moving around the altar. There's a lot of handling this and handling that. There's a, there's a lot of processing. There's a lot of swinging. There's a of, of uh, incense, that is, not a priest. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff going on. And in, in the temple, there's just a lot of stuff going on, even in the tabernacle. And you just look at that and you go, okay, there's just so much going on. By contrast, there appears to be so little going on here. We talked about the fact that people sometimes refer to this as an altar going back especially to the Second Great Awakening, it is not an altar. The one thing that is not is an altar. There has never been anything killed there. That is not, and if, if so, it wouldn't have any theological meaning whatsoever. No. And, and so there's just less doing, and there's, and there's less sensory perception too. It's another thing about human beings. Human beings love sensory perception. We are drawn to certain kinds of of uh, sensory attractions. We are drawn to things that sound good. We're drawn to things that smell good. We are drawn to things that uh, look good. Uh, similarly, we are repelled from things that smell bad. We are, uh, we're repelled from things that aesthetically are unpleasing to us. Notice how aesthetically pleasing the Lord himself designed the tabernacle and the temple. Incredibly spectacularly, visibly attractive. There had been nothing like it. And remember that when the tabernacle was first built, it was in the middle of a desert. And I have had the opportunity to be there in this desert. And let me tell you, there is nothing beautiful in it unless you just think Stark is beautiful. And there's no life in it. 
which is why God had to keep him alive uh, there in that desert. There is rarely, and, and in my eyes, I can't remember seeing any color. It's all gray and brown. It's basically earth. So the turquoise and the, and, and the colors, the gold, the, even the bright whites, uh, the reds, not to mention the red of the blood, just think of the, think of the color that is now demonstrated here. And again, this is pretty much pottery barn. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's earth tones. Not much bright color here. We come here attracted by the worship of the one true and living God, attracted by the preaching of the word, attracted by the fellowship of the saints, the ordinary means of grace. That's what, that's what draws us. We're, we're attracted by non-aesthetic, uh, non-olifactory, um, non-spectacle. And that sets us apart. But even as you see this, you can understand all this is what the disciples would have thought normal worship of God means. The transformation in the New Testament, for instance, just in the book of Acts, from this to the, the believers gathering in a room for prayer and for singing and for the preaching of God's word, do you recognize how radical that was? I mean, it's full stop. This is one of the issues that Gentile Christians, or I would even say modern Jewish readers, they have a very difficult time understanding this full stop. Now, we're in Leviticus. This is full speed ahead. But we have to read this as Christians knowing that there's a full stop coming. When that veil is torn because Jesus says it is finished, then the sacrificial system just ends all of it. And by the way, it may have continued in, in the temple, but it meant nothing. It's all finished. Jesus paid it all. He fulfilled it all. The exhortations here given to Israel are about maintaining all of these commands, all of these details and specificities in such a way that Israel would know we have to do this right. So much so that uh, when we get to chapters just ahead of us, you're going to find the sacrifice for what happens when you get it wrong. But we need to back up a bit and just consider, we've seen the burnt offering and the grain offering. Now we're at the peace offering. What makes this different? Now we know the difference in the details. It can be either a male or a female animal has to be without blemish, male or female. We see the pattern continues with the laying on of the hands. Which is, so the, the hands of the person bringing the sacrifice are placed upon the animal. And again, that, that, that's a substitutionary move. Uh, the, the guilt is being transferred to the animal in a picturesque way. Now again, as we know from the book of Hebrews and implicit here, there is no salvation in the blood of bulls and goats. It is, it is impossible. It's one of the it is impossible statements that are repeated in the book of Hebrews. It is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to wash away sin. But it does hold back the wrath of God. And that's what this is about. And that's what the peace offering is about. Let us say that uh, that two people in this room from two different households get into a dispute. And the dispute turns ugly. Well, we're all praying for a resolution. This is a, this is a dispute, and it is, it is ugly. It is harmful. It is hurtful. It is divisive. Let's say that you have a business partner that has betrayed you. Let's say a business deal has gone bad. And the urge here is towards reconciliation. Inside Israel, and we're talking inside Israel, inside the people, God's covenant people, there is the 
the impulse to try to make things right. There's indeed the divine command to try to make things right. And this making things right, God even uses as a metaphor for his relationship with us when he says, come, let us reason together. Let us reason together. Now, when God says that, he doesn't say, hey, let's just negotiate your sin down. He means, let's let us reason together. I will tell you of your sin. I will tell you of salvation. The peace offering is based upon the fact that if there is a restoration, one of the most important ceremonial ways to make that restoration clear is to sit at a meal. Sitting at a meal is the implication of a restoration of relationship in this sense and a vulnerability the one to the other. The idea here is that you do not eat with your enemies. Eat with those who are your, your friends. In the 23rd Psalm, when the psalmist says, thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. It's kind of in contrast what we're talking about here. That's just jarring. That's supposed to catch our attention. That's not supposed to happen. That's a very bad situation to have a table set before you in the presence of your enemies. You can't eat. You ever been in a situation where a dog doesn't know whether it is supposed to eat or bark? I guarantee you, you have, if you've had dogs much. Dogs seem to think the most important thing in life is to eat. So much so that they will just train themselves by instinct to, to eat. Mary and I and, and, and our children had a, a beagle in our home. His name was Baxter. Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan beagle. He was a beautiful animal. We loved him dearly. He was an idiot. <laughs> Mary and the kids, when he was just a, kind of a growing puppy, but he wasn't tiny. He was getting towards being grown. Um, Mary and the kids were visiting with her parents because her father had had surgery. I was back in Louisville working, thus I was a single father to the pup at the time. I got a call because some workmen from the seminary had been working in the kitchen installing some repaired cabinets. This dog would eat anything that fell off the counter. He had an instinct such that food was such an obsession that if Mary were to drop something, there's no way she beat the animal to that item of food. And then the animal would eat it and look up at her and say, did anything just happen here? I didn't say anything happened here. I got a call because they said, Dr. Moeller, weird thing happened to your house. One of the workmen dropped a screw and Baxter ate the screw. This is a small enough dog, this is a problem. I will not go into the details, but let me just tell you that I found myself making major medical decisions having to do with the screw in a dog. Knowing that somehow this dog was going to have to survive and thus we went through the ordeal of the screw in the dog. The point is eating. Eat anything. Don't even look at it. Don't even sniff it. If it falls on the floor in the kitchen, eat it. Dogs are often, canines are often in the position of being very watchful as they eat. It is suggested that's one of the reasons why they eat as they eat, so that their eyes can scan the horizon, because there could be something dangerous coming along. So you gotta, you gotta eat, but you gotta watch. You, you, got, you gotta watch. So, for human beings, eating means some level of trust, or at least the hope of trust, some restoration of relationship, because you can't eat with someone if you're afraid they're going to stab you. You can't eat with someone if you're afraid they're going to, to mistreat you. 
You eat often after there's actually been a formal reconciliation. Let's look at Genesis chapter 26. It's in the background here. So here you have uh, Abimelech and Isaac. Look at verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzeth, his advisor, and Fichol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Notice the next words. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. So that's a picture right there. And you notice the covenant is invoked. A covenant is made between Isaac and Abimelech. And the conflict is over. It was, it was honestly expressed. But then it is resolved. And the, the demonstration of the fact that this relationship has been restored inside this covenant is the fact that a meal, a feast is prepared. We will see the same thing with Joseph and Laban. And uh, we, will, we, will, we will see, I mean, Jacob, excuse me, Jacob and Laban, uh, we will see that uh, after the relationship is restored, they have a feast. After Laban has sought Jacob down and accused him and then things are made right, there's a similar meal. The covenant setting is very clear. So, as we think about that, it's just good for us to remember that this particular offering, this peace offering, is actually one of the offerings that will, will come up again and again and again because it is the picture of the peace that is produced by a covenant and reconciliation. And it's going to have to, have to happen over and over again for the children of Israel. Somewhere else to look, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 14 just because it begins the paragraph. Therefore, my beloved, free from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now listen to the next verse. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? He goes on. This is about food sacrificed to idols. But the point is, you will notice that even in this, the, the food of the sacrifice, which is eaten by all. So that, that's what's unusual. This is not just the priest. This is eaten by all. So it is a feast the aroma is to be pleasing to the Lord. It is to be brought exactly under the circumstances that are dictated here. But it, it, it makes clear in the beauty of a shared meal under these circumstances the restoration of the relationship between the sinner and God. And the restoration of that, of that uh, relationship is pictured as the end of a dispute. That's really, really important. The end or the conclusion, the resolution of a dispute. This language will come up again and again, especially you think in the prophets of the Old Testament where the Lord will say, I have a dispute with you. I have a dispute with you. Similarly, that's the background in the New Testament 
to the fact that God has a dispute with sinners. There's a conflict, and of course it's an unresolvable conflict, but it's a conflict that is accomplished through the blood of the eternal covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we shall see, but further on, what we call the Lord's Supper is a picture of that restored relationship. It is a memorial meal, so the, the, this do in remembrance of me, yes. By the way, it is ordered. It is an ordinance. So you know, people think of Baptists, they think, well, you're not sacramentalist, so you don't believe there's any transubstantiation, you don't think there's any consubstantiation, and so there is no real sense of urgency to the Lord's table, but there is. It is because this is an ordinance. It is as much an ordinance for the church as sacrifice was an ordinance for Israel. And it's ordered not just in general terms, it is ordered in its particulars, in terms of the bread and in terms of the cup. It is ordered to the extent that we are told what to say in Scripture concerning the nature of the cup. We are told what to say in the New Testament concerning the meaning of the bread. We are told how to invite people to the table, and then we are told the bread is this, the blood is this. It's as much an ordinance for the church as sacrifice was an ordinance for Israel. The difference is, for the church, it is the celebration of a looking back to one sacrifice that completely atones and once for all. You'll notice in the very next chapter, this becomes clear. Chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you think, as you drink it, in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, the text continues, but the point is, this isn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. This is not the book of Acts. This is 1 Corinthians. So this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And, and remember also that the Corinthian church was made up largely of Gentiles. The Gentile Christians in Corinth desperately needed to know this background in order that they could connect some dots in what we would call biblical theology in order to understand, okay, there was a sacrifice. We are now commemorating that sacrifice. And it is an ordinance. We are told to do it exactly in this way. And as much as the early Christians in Corinth needed this text, so do we need this text. One final part of Leviticus chapter 3 to which we need to pay some attention. The very final words. We were told that all fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever. This is verse 17. Throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places, that you eat neither fat nor blood. The issue here is, uh, is the blood. And obviously, Israel eats meat, but it is to be meat drained of blood. Now, this is a very interesting thing, and, and it has led some Christians to read the Bible superficially and, I think, not think this through. Uh, anyone who's ever worked in a butcher shop or in a grocery store that has a butcher shop, you know that... Uh, Americans do not buy, in the main, blooded meat. You say, why in the world are you talking about this? This is distasteful. Well, no, it's, it's actually groceries. In other words, the, the meat that is cut is meat that has been drained. The animal has been hung in most circumstances in such a way that gravity has pulled the, the blood out of the 
out of the meat. Now, you buy a steak, you buy a roast, there's going to be some residual blood, but that is going to be nothing like the blood that would have been in that cut before the body was drained. In order to understand this, we need to look at Leviticus chapter 17. So just go a few chapters ahead. Leviticus chapter 17. There are two verses here, and they answer two different questions, even though they follow one another. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is the blood in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The principle here is for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So later we will be told, as you look at the book of Hebrews, so without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. You'll see that echoed in the Old Testament. So blood sacrifice. And so the draining of the blood was a part of the process of the sacrifice. And Israel, you'll notice in the very next verse, is told it is not to consume that blood. Verse 12, therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Okay, now we're in it deep. Israel is told that it is never to eat blood. And so there are some who will say, well, that just means, you know, I mean, vegetarian, but clearly that, that, that's not what's called for here. The animal is to be drained of its blood for, for numerous reasons, but for one thing, it's just because it is to make very clear that blood is not a product for food. Animal blood is not a product for food. And so the animal is drained, and again, this, this means that most of the meat you're going to encounter anywhere is going to be meat that meets this specification because the blood has been drained out. For one thing, if it's not, the blood, the animal, the meat perish is perishable in a radical sense. It, uh, it has to be drained of the blood, partly just so that it doesn't uh, go bad before you could buy it and, and consume it. I don't think this means you should not have your steak rare. Uh, because the blood has been drained out of the there's still juice in it. I've known people who've said, therefore, you can't eat a steak rare. I don't think that's true. I wouldn't eat a non-bled steak. But a bled steak, I would eat unincinerated. <laughs> Let me put it that way. I do not want the sacrifice to be <laughs> burned on the altar before I, before I consume it. But there still is a relevance here. And, and it's at least uh, two or three things we need to keep in mind. Number one, there are cultures, you can go to places like, you know, I've been to places in Europe where you can buy blood sausages and you can buy blood paste and blood jelly. Thank you, no. I've got a theological reason not to do that. Uh, and by the way, we are not bound by the dietary laws of Israel but there is wisdom in some of those dietary laws that has to do with God's provision for his people. I'm not calling you a heretic if you eat a blood sausage. I'm simply saying that is in conflict with, at least with Leviticus chapter 3. You're not under the law, but you're informed. Uh, the, the other thing about blood is that human societies even before they had any knowledge of modern medicine, learned that blood needs to be separated uh, from human domicile, you know, where humans live. Because it is, uh, once it's out of the body, it is itself something that becomes toxic. And you take it away. And uh, so, as you think about this, you just recognize you store grain, you store bread, you store 
non-perishable fruits and vegetables. You don't store blood. And certainly in this day, you couldn't store meat. I'll close with this. There are people who think that Americans are impoverished because of our alienation from the process of agriculture. I think there's a very strong argument to be made there. Very strong argument. Uh, societies are less healthy as the reality of agriculture recedes into the background because agriculture is the beginning of civilization. So I think it's a very strong argument to make. I believe this is, I think there's a lot of traction in this argument that the more societies get alienated from the process of raising and uh, preparing food, the, uh, the more endangered a civilization becomes because its first, its first function is, is gone. And by the way, the first function of agriculture requires things that evidently a high-tech society doesn't require. It requires certain trust. It requires certain waiting. It requires constant diligence. It requires a family lineage to maintain this generation after generation has to assume this task. And it ties us to seasons, and it ties us to knowing that only God can make a seed sprout. And only God can make a you give birth. And as we're alienated from that, it's a problem. But this text reminds us that as we are alienated from the sacrificial system, we're endangered. This doesn't mean we live in the book of Leviticus. We don't. We're studying the book of Leviticus. We're going through the book of Leviticus. We are not God's Levitical people. We're God's redeemed people. But this is a picture of what it cost for human beings to be redeemed of sin. We get too alien from this. As my grandfather would say, we're getting too big for our bridges. It's not healthy. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you've given us this one chapter from the book of Leviticus and told us about the peace offering. Father, we come before you now as we continue through this Lord's day. We come to worship. We come to everything that will happen in this day with the knowledge that you have made peace with us through Christ. He is our peace. The sacrifice was done and was completely, eternally satisfying to you. And thus, in the name of the Lamb, Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.